0: Please.
1: Another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Doctor GX Wolfei. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at FunkinStuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First guide to Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm honored to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership iconic funk, R&B, jazz, and rock drummer Steve Ferroni. Among his seemingly endless list of musical accomplishments is being a member of Average White Band from 1974 to 1982, serving as Shaka Khan's primary drummer from 1978 onward, and beginning in 1994, serving as a member of Tom Petty's Heartbreakers Band. Other top artists he has worked with, uh, recorded with, include The Emotions, Brothers Johnson, Jeffrey Osborne, George Benson, Tina Marie, Stanley Clark, Steve Winwood, Mick Jagger, Eric Clapton, Anita Baker, Bernie Worrell, Etta James, Marcus Miller, and Johnny Cash.
0: Steve, how are you? (laughs) I'm tired from all that work. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh,
1: quite a list, man. Very impressive. Congratulations on all of it. Thank you.
0: Where are you today, Steve? I'm in my studio in Los Angeles. You can tell by the mess. (laughs) You almost people like you look. Look how nice and tidy your studio is. Mine gets like that every once in a while, and then it just sort of explodes or implodes, whatever's going on. Well, you know, it looks
1: like a working musician to me.
0: Yeah. I got my little jazz kit. My little jazz kit there. I go and play a jazz gig. Um, uh, Tuesday mornings at 8.30 in the morning, I go and play jazz at a place called Jones Coffee Roaster in Pasadena. (laughs) I know it's unbelievable. Eight thirty in the morning. Wow! When they, when they told me about it, I, I had to go see it just because I couldn't believe that they did it. And they jam packed in there now. They love it. Oh, a lot that's of great!
1: That sounds like a good way to wake up to me.
0: Yeah, I have to get wake up pretty early. I mean, I, I, I usually it's usually over in my storage. And I'm going to do it again next week. So I just brought it home because I didn't want to have to go all the way over there and load it up again in Burbank and. <laughs> Yeah, well, good. I, uh, I, get up, I get up about about six o'clock, stagger around for a little bit, and uh, take a shower, and uh, and then go over, load up, load up the drums, take them out there, set them up myself. You believe that? Wow, and break them down myself too. I don't that know reminds, what it was.
1: That reminds me of the stories like Robin Russell. I don't know if you knew the drummer for uh, New Birth. Uh, he used to go set up at Griffith Park like at sunup and play for people out there. And it was amazing to me that he would do that. (laughs) Well,
0: um, you keep hearing that dinging. Somebody keeps messaging me. I don't know. What about, I don't even know how to silence on this thing.
1: (laughs) I'm actually not hearing it, but um,
0: I'm hearing it. here.
1: There does seem to be a little bit of a, um, a latency on your audio though. But other than that, I'm not hearing that sound
0: latency i got latency i think so yeah but i don't know. there you go well hopefully i
1: won't talk over you too much uh, because of that but um so hey so good to have you been a fan for so long uh back to you know the very beginnings of awb and uh you know i wanted to talk about uh, to start with um just to get it clear steve You know, you first worked with uh, folks like Freddie King and Brian Auger, and was Bloodstone before AWB or concurrent, or how did that work out?
0: Well, I met uh, Robbie McIntosh uh, when I was about 17 years old from Average White White Band's original drama in Italy, and I was over there playing with a band called Mouse and the Traps, and uh, Robbie was playing with a band called The Senate and uh uh he and uh, uh another guy alex legitwood they stayed in a little penzoni right off of via veneto in rome and i moved in there with a, a bandmate of mine and uh and uh we um we hung out all the four of us uh, a guy named Calvin bullen myself and robbie mcintosh and alex legitwood became great buddies and uh uh we we, we were friends for a long time and then i and then uh, Robbie went and joined a band called the Piranhas and I followed him into the Piranhas and then he went and um, uh, joined Brian Auger and then I followed him into Brian Auger and he was with Average White Band and eventually I followed him into into uh, Average White Band, but not under such uh, nice circumstances that had happened before. Absolutely. So,
1: yeah. uh, but your professional experience before Average White Band did include Brian Auger, right, and Freddie King and... Yes, very
0: simple. But I was working with, with, with. I started working with Brian Olga in uh, in London uh, after leaving. Well, I was at school in the south of France and, and working with a band in the band the Piranhas in the south of France, and um, and uh, 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 then I started to, to work with a bunch of studio uh, musicians uh, called a band called Gonzales. Uh, and so when I, I go and I travelled to, to the United States with um, with Brian, and then came back to to, to England, and and uh, started to do little uh, sessions here and there. And a guy named McEaves had this band called Gonzales, uh, a tenor saxophone player. And he said, "You want to come play with the band? It's a studio musician band. And what happens is, is that when somebody leaves town or does a, does a session and can't make a gig." You go in and you play, and then you—it's your seat until you can't make the gig, and then somebody comes in and replaces you, and then you have to wait for them to leave. And so, uh, fortunately, at that time, and I was playing—I um, uh, was in, my, in one of one of my periods with uh, with Gonzalez. Uh, we played at Ronnie Scott's Club in in uh, in London, and uh, and uh, 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 a producer named Mike Vernon walked in, and said, "I want this band to perf- uh, to record with uh, Freddie King." So it was actually my first real recording date uh that I did uh, uh as a studio musician was uh, uh was Freddie King's album Burglar. Pretty okay. good, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and were you uh were you pretty steeped in the blues?
0: Well, I I I, play, I started playing with the blues band when, when um uh, uh when I was uh when I first started playing in Brighton, I played with a band called the the Web. Uh, uh well originally we were called we were called the flames and then there was another band called the flames so we had to get a new name so they came up the, with the web <laughs> which they should have we should have uh we should have uh we should have laid claim to that the web <laughs> we probably worth a fortune now <laughs> but uh 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 we had this song called calling black spider and uh and so they said, Well, let's call ourselves the web. So we became the web and I played with them. And they, and they were they were older than I was. I was I was like twelve years old when I started playing with them. And uh, and all these kids were like 18, 17, usually kids that would beat up kids my age, but because I could play music and and I, I played, they 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 liked the way I played the drums, so so they, they became my protectors. And in, in becoming my protectors, they went to my mom and they said, Listen, there's a blues concert coming through town, and they're playing at the dome. Can we take you? Can we take your son with us? And my mum said, "Yeah, sure, take him." And so I went down, and I got to see uh, all the blues tours. Um, you know, learn about guys named Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, and and uh, uh, and uh, 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 John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, and I'd sit there and watch those guys play. And uh, everybody he thought that it was, uh, yeah, yeah uh, if I if if I'd have known what I was watching, I would have paid more attention <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it was. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed the show. So, so you know, we 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 used to emulate that music quite a bit. You know, I was more of a, a, a although I was I can't say I wasn't a fan of the Beatles. I was more of a Stones fan because they sort of lent more, a bit more towards the blues. However, the Beatles did play a lot of the same stuff as what we did when they were in Hamburg. I think all the bands played like the. Uh, a lot of Chuck Berry and uh, uh, a lot of blues stuff. Even if we didn't know what it was, we were playing it. You know, uh, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, yeah. So that was kind of where where I was with it all. So yeah, blues drummer, I guess.
1: So you were already uh, good friends with Robbie uh, when that tragedy struck. Um, was there any doubt or much doubt that you would come into that chair, or were other people considered?
0: I, I never, I never, um, I never expected to get that chair because I was actually employed. I was employed by a band called Bloodstone here in. Uh, it was they were making a movie and and, and an album, and uh, I got to play on on that here, and it was the same producer, Mike Vernon, that was the the, the producer for that, and um, and uh, 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 I, I, I was hanging. I mean, you know, I. Robbie and I were friends, old friends at that point in time, and um, uh, he invited me to the party, he invited me to the gig, and I didn't, I, I, I mean, I'd seen Average White Man perform before, and, and as a matter of fact, Gonzalez even opened for them a gig at Easter uh, at the Roundhouse in London, and, uh, and I loved Average White Man, I thought they were great. And uh, and then uh, Robbie Robbie had passed away, and uh, I, I went round and saw the guys, and and uh, we were sitting in this hotel, not very far from here, about eight miles away from here now, where I live. And and uh, and I said, uh, you know, you guys can't stop now, man. You know, you just they were just starting to get airplay, with uh, with the, uh, pick up the pieces, and I said, you know, Robbie wouldn't want you to stop now. You got to keep going. And and they and what happened was was that. Uh, I, you know, I, I offered to help them out any way that I could. And they said, well, they had a gig that, that they want, that they, that they would, that they were doing. Could I come and fill in? And I said, sure. So I went and, uh, uh, uh they rehearsed with them and, uh, and then, uh, did, did a show with them. I did, I, I did the shows when I could, they were doing, they weren't doing like tour tour. They were doing spot gigs here and there. So, so they were opening for Billy Cobham. And, um, and, uh, and so I went and, went and did a couple of shows with them here and there. And when I couldn't do it, because I was working with Bloodstone, Sticks Super would do it. And then they started to audition They started to audition drummers. And, and we were invited down, me and Sticks. We went down and we'd sit there and, and uh, we'd, we'd um, watch these guys that was lying around the block, people wanting to come and play with the average white band. And uh, these guys would walk in and they'd start to the play and we'd watch the band get depressed. And then, uh, and then in between, in between, uh, the, the people that were being brought in, we go and jam with them, you know, and, and cheer them up again, because they, they would just get really miserable. We were really, really unhappy about the fact that they, you know, they sit down and play with someone and it just wasn't working, wouldn't, didn't click. And so we go and I I'd, I'd go and jam with them. Or the sticks would go and jam with them. And we'd have some fun. And then, uh, so I was doing a gig with them down at Long Beach, uh, Long Beach Auditorium. And uh, uh, after the, it was a very successful gig, it started off a little bit, a little bit. People used to, we walk out on stage and people would say, What what's this? They, they, they didn't know what to expect. They, they, you know, they're expecting like a black band to walk out there. And here comes the average white band. And they were actually what, five white guys and me. And so there was a lot of, we, we ran across a lot of people that would sort of sit there with, impress me sort of attitude and um, and you know sort of home in on somebody that was like moving their head a little bit and then it would sort of <laughs> spread out from there and next thing you know everybody was dancing and and, and we convinced them and after the show um, this little dapper little guy came walking up to me wearing a sports jacket and a shirt and a tie and a little glasses and a little beard little goatee and he and he spoke like that. He, uh, that, that, that New York sort of growly thing, you know. And he came up and he said, you got to be in the band. And I said, well, you know, I'd love to. I just had a great time. It was really cool. But, you know, I'm under contract to to another band. I, you know, I can't join the band. And he said, you're out of that contract and you're in the band. And then he turned around and walked away. And and I thought, who the hell is that? And then Bruce McCaskill, the band's manager, was standing in, And I said, Bruce, who's that guy? You know, and he said that's Ahmed Erdogan Mm -hmm. uh, chairman of Atlantic records. And I was out of that contract and I was in (laughs) average. Whether he wanted (laughs) to or
1: not, it sounds like
0: (laughs) he he knew what he was talking
1: about. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, And you went in and you cut that uh, first record, cut the cake. Um, Cake, What do you remember about that experience um, cutting that album? Was it, um, you know, kind of mixed feelings, and
0: what was the chemistry like? Well, I mean, I've been playing with the guys. I mean, I, we we look, you know, Robbie and I had an affinity for the same same kind, being brought up in the same kind of music. We listened to a lot of R and a lot of Motown, and uh, and that's what we liked, and and that's what we did. We made our own, I guess, what they called it, blue eyed soul um uh, uh uh we made our own kind of music and when i when i started to play with them it wasn't that difficult to fit in i mean we had we all had, we all came from the same place and so um and like i was saying people would sit there and say oh it comes to this band and and then they'd realize that the band wasn't just I- imitating r&b it was it was meaningful it was it was authentic. And so uh, that's what made, I think made AWB a lot different from a lot of the other bands that were, were flying around at that point. You came, jumped jump on the blue eyed soul bandwagon. The we were original, uh, authentic and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so it, it wasn't that hard to, to, to fit in. Um, uh, I, we went to New York and I got introduced to Arif Mardin. And, uh, um, uh, uh who uh, uh was an amazing producer uh um he he had a way of being able to when you were running something down he'd take you to a few bars and he said that's what I want to do the entire song right there that's it that's 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 your that's what that's going to be your focus and so we go in and we play those songs and uh and um he was an amazing arranger he could arrange it so he, the way that he arranged records were you know, he put strings and horns and all kinds of stuff on the recordings. But uh, uh, he, uh, it, it, when we went to play it live with six pieces, it w- wasn't like you were missing anything. You know, he was uh, he had an amazing ear. He was a very funny guy, uh, and, and very unlikely looking. Uh, he didn't really look like a record producer. If a record producer looks anyway. Yeah, you know, sort of imagine like a long-haired sort of guy with you know smoke sitting there puffing on a joint or something. This was like straight down the line. <laughs> you know, just short hair and a, a, a suit and tie and uh, uh, um, all business, all business, all business, and and knew his business too. He really did know his stuff, you know. And uh, and, and because I'd been in music school, when 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 he he would come up with something that he liked, so I could remember what it was, I just jot down where that pocket was for me. You know, I write it out, and he noticed that I I read I read music, and uh, and um, he said, listen, he said I noticed you read you read music a little bit when we finished the album. And he said, um, uh, um, I'm going to be doing some sessions. Would you would you come and play some sessions for me? And I said, oh yeah, I'd love to do that, and uh, and and that's when I got introduced uh, to making music with uh, what I call the school of local local 802. Uh, in New York, playing with musicians like Will Lee, the Brecker Brothers, um, uh, 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 oh God, uh, Joe Joe Caro, great guitarist, uh, 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 David Spinoza, Hugh McCracken, uh, Richard T. Uh, uh, all the all these guys, uh, just wonderful, wonderful players. Uh, that the really uh, Marcus Miller, guys that that would would help me um i i had good instinct and and and, and uh, for music and, and and they would they would help me through they teach me they teach you learn what worked and what didn't you know but uh, um uh, uh basically that was um where i learned about 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 my craft about what i do now which is taking a band for a lot of musicians and pulling them together making that that, that band a, a, a unit and, yeah. um, and let, be sitting in the center of the band uh, let, and I like that to them
1: Let me ask you Steve about um, I gotta say Schoolboy Crush is one of my all time favorite all times you know yeah. I, I do uh, top uh, funk tracks of all time radio show and in the first group I chose of the 12 of all time I had Schoolboy Crush in there among the 12 all time for anyone and yeah. uh do you remember when that group first came together? You still perform it and keep it alive, so
0: I think Hamish started to play started to play the bass bass line. Uh, uh he was just went boom 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 boom. And I started thinking Marvin Gaye, <laughs> for some reason. And it started And it all and then Alan came in that the, the the guitar thing and uh, and and we had the groove before we had the song, you know And um and um and so that was uh that was basically it. That, that was the, uh, the, the 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 pocket was there. And then all we had to do was just uh, basically it's a blues, yeah. You know? and uh and uh uh, uh with a, a little different sort of kick for the chorus that goes around just change get away from that beat for just a little bit play something else but the the thing that seems to always interest everybody is like where did those sleigh bells come from you know? mm-hmm. and um and um and we we cut the song it it took forever i mean we did a lot of takes i don't know I, I, uh, i always say like 26 or 27 i've heard people say 34 35 we it, it, we we tried we tried recording that track and again and it would just not hang together it's something that hangs together very very in a very specific way and uh and uh it would start off all right and then it would end up not so good and then or it would start off great and uh, 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 it was start off not so good and drift into it but to get that and hold that that um uh, that that atmosphere uh for the i don't know three and a half minutes however long it takes to do that um uh it was it was a challenging and we did we worked on this thing all day and 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 and, and finally ari said look i tell you what Let's just forget about this today. Go home, do what you got to do. Go out, go over to Amon Durans and have, have a couple of drinks, and do, you know, go blow out a little bit. Do whatever you're doing. Come back tomorrow. We, we should nail it, you know, early on. And so we came back uh, the next day and uh, and went in there and sat down and said, let's just run it down and see if we remember the arrangement and everything. And we ran it down, and we said, okay, let's do a take. And we we, we played the take a bit. And we went in to listen to it and it did the same thing again. It just didn't hang together. And we're like, oh no, here we go again. You know, we got another day of this to get this track. Going. And uh Gene Paul, our engineer, said, Do you want to listen to the run through? And we listened to the run through and there it was. <laughs> so uh it was uh it was one of those one of those things. It was uh, it was it was really hard to capture that moment for that song. But uh, uh, yeah, it was well worth it in the end. I, mean, I listen; I love listening to that song. I, I don't get tired of that at all.
1: Yeah. That's exactly it. I get tired of even a lot of the greatest songs that I like. Uh, but that one, yeah, I yeah. never get tired of. I mean, I people sometimes say if you could have one song play when you enter a room, you know, for me, it might be Schoolboy Crush. I mean, it's just
0: right. amazing. It, it captures. It, it really captures. Yeah. You know, yeah I mean that's really that's really what you're trying to do when you're making a record is capturing a moment, and that one and it was it was it was painful to get to, but it got there,
1: yeah well, it was definitely worth it. and one of the things about a w b in particular, Steve, I think that made him so unique was the ability of the band to just lay in that slow funk groove. you know a lot of the mm-hmm. tracks were slower than some of the other contemporaries right. were doing, you know, like warmer communications and uh, Your love is a miracle, and uh, a School schoolboy crush, and um, so many of yeah. them were just a little bit slower.
0: Yeah, I, you know, a, a, a lot of you know, a lot of friends, friends that I used to work with in France when we went and played over there. They come and see the bands, and they said, "Man, you, you know, this band is just so mid-tempo. It's like you don't do things fast." You know, it's a it's it's a, it was a mid tempo band you know it, it, it wasn't a ballad band but well i mean even though we did have a couple of big ballads and love of your own is a big ballad but uh, um uh, uh it, it was it was definitely in there in the, in the mid tempo and 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 i and i have to say the 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 thing about average white man we used to call it the treatment you know we would give songs air treatment it, it, we we didn't just go in there and just play the song down. And uh, sometimes some songs didn't really need much, you know. But uh, uh, or, or like "Schoolboy it just took that formula of finding these parts that would hang together, and then letting the groove do it. It didn't need any fancy fills. It didn't need any um, uh, uh, fancy playing or uh, you know fast notes. It just needed everything needed to hang in that pocket. That was uh, that was average white man, and and that's what we did. We do that naturally when we sit down and start playing. That's what happens when, when I mean. Hamish came here uh, a couple of years ago. We came here when we were working here in the studio, and just the two of us sitting down and playing stuff. It, it started to happen. You know, it, it would just. It's a, it's a it's a little quirkiness that happens when when we all play when we all play together, and that that's what makes a uh, uh, that those those recordings of average white bands so special, I believe. You know, so the
1: interlocking, I, I agree, Stephen, the interlocking of you guys, how you guys interlocked and locked in, and also the spaces in the music
0: just yeah. gave it so much the, more. Yeah, it's, it, it, a lot of space. There was always a lot of space, and I'd always like leaving holes for people to put stuff in. And it, 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 uh, You know, I, I've seen a lot of different people, uh, playing um, uh, the Average White Band songs. I mean, the Average White Band is still going in, uh, in the, with just Oni and, Onnie and, um, and uh, Alan Gorry and Olly McIntyre. I just spoke to Oni this morning, actually, and I've seen them play with a number of different musicians. But there always seems to be that point in, when they're playing a song, and they'd be jogging on quite nicely, that somebody will start thinking that they need to do something else. And they don't seem to have... Um, uh, the faith in the pocket that we had when we played together—it uh, uh, you know, doesn't need a fill. Forget, yeah. You know, if you're thinking about a fill, don't play. As a matter of fact, stop playing. You know, that's that seems to be the. The guy, the guy asked me once, "How do you play? How do you play funk?" I said, "Well, okay. You know, when you're sitting there, he was a bass player. Right? So, you know, you're sitting there and you're playing, and it's feeling really good. Yeah, yeah." And you get this great idea and you say, Man, you know, gonna get to that when I go into that verse, when I go in that chorus, I'm gonna play this stuff that's really cool, man. I'm gonna be the next James Jameson, you know. At that point, stop playing, don't play anything. Think it if you want, but don't play it. <laughs> and stay away from it and then start playing again. And the guy was like, he was like, Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And then when I said, You know, yeah, yeah, I know I'm getting there. and I said, then stop playing, don't play. And he said, What? <laughs> don't, don't play anything <laughs> stop don't play that film at all and don't as a matter of fact stop playing everything just a beat leave a beat leave it empty <laughs> let everybody expect it and then have nothing there you know uh, i i did an album with with pat metheny called uh secret story and there was one of the tracks i did i did part of the album i didn't do all of it um uh, there's a there's a, a a song on there. I forget what it's called now, uh, um, but it's it's an amazing amazing arrangement, and and he plays this beautiful melody through this through this really complicated chord sequence, but it's it's very easy to understand the melody, uh, and 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 then he plays a solo, and he plays a solo over those chords. Then it gets to the bridge of the song. I'm sorry if I'm getting too technical for people. The, the bridge is a bit. Well, that has nothing to do with anything else that sort of ties everything together. <laughs> uh, it gets to the bridge of the song, and if and, and 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 if I was if I was a guitarist, I'd look at the bridge and I'd say this would be my my place where I could play so many notes through there and be really impressive that I was playing what I what I would play through there. What does Pat Matheny do? He doesn't play anything. He lets the bridge play. Mm. And that's the stuff man that left a hole that left that left a big space for this other stuff to speak and made him important once he started playing the melody again beautiful beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing
1: less less is more in that case that's Um, right yeah but you understand it so well i mean even later on when you recorded uh these records um like um that one—it was sort of a solo record for you. It was a fur uh, farm fur. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, those versions you did on that of those AWB tracks—I
0: mean, just your killer. Well, that 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 all came together. You know, I, I owned a studio in Burbank, and 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 half of the studio space uh, was leased to Sabian Sabian symbols. They had their offices and showrooms there. And uh, and I I'd been out on the road with Joe Walsh and and in the band with Joe Walsh with Dean and Robert DeLeo, and we became great friends. They're very funny guys, great guys, and uh, we still are good, really good friends. And uh, we were sitting around talking one day, and they started talking to me about average white band stuff, kind of like what you're doing now, and telling some some stories. And uh, and they said, you know, we really like to learn how to play some of that stuff. And I said, well, yeah, come over to the studio and we sit down and play as a matter of fact i got a couple of songs like original songs that that kind of need that sort of a treatment to it you know so they they came over they used to come over to my studio and uh, we go in and we and i teach them teach them average white band songs uh, dean when he first came in there robert's robert right great bass player dean is a great guitarist but dean said you know, I don't really play rhythm. I, I'm not really a rhythm guitarist. And I kind of work out what my, I don't improvise. I work out what my solos are going to be. And then I play those, that's the solos that I play. And I said, that's all going to change now. <laughs> We're going to be, this is going to be, a different, this is going to be a different experience for you. And I'll be down by the, by the end of it. You know, we, there's this, we do this. Uh, uh, I think, I think we played Um, cut the cake. And it and cut the cake, you go do not segue straight into person to person and dean. So you don't play with them guitar. Yeah. And that was kind of how that. Uh, and then the guys from Sabian sort of heard heard us doing this stuff, and they said, "Listen, you want to come and play that for us at the at the Nam show? Put a band together around that." So I I asked them if they wanted to do it, and they said, "Yeah, let's play a gig." You know, we've been playing these songs, and and and, and of course, you know, they they they're, they're not the, the the musicians that that you sit a in front of them and they read. They're they, they're a band. They're band guys who are. Uh, who learn songs, who make songs, who learn songs. And so uh, we, we started, we, we upped that, uh, that rehearsal experience and some of the other guys would show up and, uh, and uh, next thing you know, we went and recorded it live at the Now Show. Is it turned out pretty good, didn't it? I mean, what oh. you hear is what you get. You know, no overdubs, that was it. <laughs> Everything
1: live. Yeah. I, I love those versions and uh yeah. listeners and viewers should definitely seek that out. It's from like two thousand and six or something, I want to say. Some time ago, yeah.
0: Two, uh, yeah.
1: early, early yeah. Yeah. Fifteen some odd years ago, more than
0: that. But farm for more head. Now I called it more head for 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 a reason, specific reason. I had an album out before that. Uh, and it was called "It Up," and that was another live recording. And we recorded in La Valley, a little club that used to be on on Sunset on uh, on Ventura Boulevard. And uh, and and it had uh, the the cover of that album was a photograph of the back of my head. Oh no, yeah, it was no the front of my head with steam coming off of it. No, it was the back of my head with steam coming off of it, and and the way that they filmed that, I, I we got, I had to go and take the photograph, and I was in, in in Arizona, and the, and the, the photographer said, "I want to get steam to come off your head." And I went, "How are you going to do that? It's Arizona, it's dry as a bone." You know, where are you he said, "I got a friend that's an ice sculpture, right, okay? and he's got a huge refrigerator that he does his ice sculpting in." I said, okay, so we go over to this guy's I, I sculpt him place and he gets a he gets a bucket of hot water and he puts the towel in the hot water and then he put it on my head, wrapped it on my head like that, and let it sit there for a bit, whipped it off, and then the steam flew off in <laughs> the freezing the steam flew off my head, and he took a photograph of it. Yeah. <laughs> so the next photograph that I used to that when the girlfriend took a photograph of the back of my head sweating when I was playing. So that's why I called it more head. Not what you thought. A little bit of a
1: double entendre. Yeah, right. Not
0: what you thought. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But you got the front and the back of the head, parts one and two. So Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um. Well, and the thing is, you know, the other average white band songs, I mean, I have at least five or six that are very favorites, but Person in Person is one, too. And you obviously have an affinity for that one, too, because you keep playing it. As Uh, I didn't even record the original one of that. That was Robbie yeah yeah um the rhythm guitar in average white band was so key and i think a lot of people do funk also you talk about putting too much in the spaces but i think a lot of them also don't give enough attention to that rhythm guitar
0: yeah there was it was all about parts you know it was uh, and i think maybe we learned that uh uh From listening to Motown, there was they, they all those you know you hear people talking about those Motown sessions. There was like three guitarists all over there, and they said they'd be like little crows talking to each other, you know, figuring out their parts. And uh and uh, uh you know, Steve Cropper, the same sort of thing. He would have parts. Uh, when you, you listen to Booker T. and the MGS, the, the, he and Duck and, and, and just locked together. In their parts that they play, you know, and they're a little, there's always like a little bit more to them than what you think there is, you know. Yeah, you, you kind of think that it's one thing, but if you actually listen to it, there's other stuff that goes on. Yeah, uh, I think it's hip hugger, you know it's just a little bit odd most people think it's like it's like with 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 um pick up the pieces i mean the number of times that i've sat down with the bands and played to play pick up the pieces and the guitarist to play and i say what's that and they say that's that's pick up the piece let's not pick up the pieces use this pick up the pieces no it's not pick up the pieces it's not That's not even in pick up the pieces anywhere in pick up the pieces it's <speaking in Spanish> it's a subtle difference but it makes the world makes the world a difference when you play it yeah uh, the little nuances make such a huge difference um, yeah it's just a little thing little thing and and it's like it's, it could have been. It was like, make that a funky chicken. You know, funky chicken, just a, that little blue note in there. Be-do-doo-doo.
1: Is there one uh, or two um, AWB performances that just stand out to you that were especially just unforgettable because maybe you guys were just so in a zone or maybe something special happened?
0: How- yeah, uh, there was a lot. There was uh, that happened a lot of times. I had a lot, but I mean, the one that, that really stands out for me was the one that made up most of the live album was uh, when we played in Cleveland. And uh, it was uh, that where they used to play baseball, uh, basketball. It was kind of in between Cleveland and somewhere else. They, they, they had an old uh, arena. They tore it down now. They play in town the basketball. But um, it was a big basketball arena there, and we did this gig, and and it was one I think one of like I think we recorded four four live live performances over the course of a year, and uh, um, um, uh, one was Philadelphia I know uh, uh, Philadelphia Cleveland I forget the other I forget what the other two were. But but um, the, that gig in Cleveland that night was magic, magic night. Uh, but, you know, there was an a, the extended version of Pick Up the Pieces and everybody gets a solo. Everybody liked their solo from a different town. <laughs> and so we're in the studio with Arif and Arif is like, uh, I don't know. It, 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 yeah, you know, We didn't play with click tracks or anything like that. It was just us playing. He said, uh, he said I tell you what, let's make a two track of it and edit it together, see if it'll work. You know? So he made a two track of all these different solos and Gene Paul went in there with his razor blade, not like you can do now with this sort of thing, you know, just get the old computer out and move the cursor around and, and uh, edit, edit, uh, he, and, and, and I'll be danged if the whole thing didn't, each solo slot right in there. We're pretty good. <laughs> pretty good band. Pretty consistent. Oh uh,
1: wow how how did you uh, how did you feel when the band st- when things wound down for the band and you moved on to other stuff? How did you feel about that?
0: Uh, well, you know, it was uh, it, there were a number of different reasons why that why that happened. We'd, uh, we'd, we, uh, at a certain point, we'd, we'd stopped, uh, 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 we'd left Atlantic Records and we were taken to Arista. Now, and personally, I was quite happy to stay at Atlantic, you know, but um, our manager uh, thought that we could do better at Arista. And uh, we went and did a record there. Nothing much happened. There was a, a, a song on there that we, we wanted to be the single, but they they didn't release it as a single. It was What You're Going to Do for Me, and uh, and um, and we were about to do another album for them, and we started to get sent these songs that basically sounded like songs that Barry Manilow had written that he didn't want to play, and uh, 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 I think they were trying to turn us into air supply or something, yeah. You know. And um, it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what many of us wanted. I don't think any of us wanted to do. Uh, there was a, a, an element of trying to to appease uh, the label by writing a hit that sounded like the last piece of shit that was number one. <laughs> and uh, and um, I just wanted to make music like we made music until we could. We hit the one that that would work, yeah. You know? And uh, and um, I guess times were changing, and uh, it, uh, I didn't want to do it anymore, and Hamish didn't want to do it anymore, and um, and so it stopped. And and it was very sad. It wasn't it wasn't an easy, not an easy uh, 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 decision to make, uh, by any means. Uh, but uh, I think it was one that, that um, I couldn't have gone on. I, I, I couldn't have gone on like that, you know, with the band. I mean, there would have come a moment when we recorded something that we hated that went to, that, that became a hit record, and then we'd have to play it <laughs> for the rest of our lives. You know, I can deal with that. I can play pick out the pieces and Schoolboy Crush and Person to Person and all those songs. I have no problem playing them at all. I can play them at anytime, anytime. And I don't think that there's a song. That I wouldn't want to play, except for the for the last couple of albums that we did that we did uh, uh, on Arista and Shine included. You know, I just, I just, uh, uh, I just uh, it just doesn't sound doesn't sound like the band. You know, it doesn't sound like what the band would do. You know, and that's, uh, 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 I became disenchanted. Hamish became disenchanted. I think everybody sort of got a little bit, you know, fed up with it. And uh, and uh, man died, basically.
1: There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview.
0: Just continue on to the next
1: part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends and become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at Funkandstuff.net. Thank you very much.